Hi, I'm Sam Broadfoot QC. And I'm David Locke QC. And we're barristers at Landmark Chambers. Our aim is to provide an overview of the law on police pensions, divided into bite-sized chunks as a series of podcasts for people who may have had some dealings in this area, whether as police officers who benefit from the scheme or people who have to operate it, such as the Police Pensions Authority, selected medical practitioners or lawyers working in this field. And of course, for anyone else who might just be interested. That's right, because you'd be amazing how many people are interested in pensions. It seems on the on the outside to be a dry and boring world, but actually it's a fascinating microcosm because the pension system has to deal with all of the great diversity of cases relating to anybody after the period they finish their working life. Pensions throw up real dilemmas and getting the pension right can be different between penury in old age and a comfortable retirement. So these cases are really important for individual police officers. They're also really important for the Police Pensions Authority that has to spend a very large amount of money supporting uh, the um, uh, uh, pensions of former officers. So getting it right is really important and we hope we'll be able to help you do that. So why us? Well, David is a well-known expert in this field. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the law in this area and realised when others like me kept coming to ask him questions about parts of it, that there was a real need for it to be all set out somewhere. So in true David form, he has written a fantastic series of chapters dealing with various aspects, which will be released free of charge along with the relevant episodes of this podcast. The reason for my involvement is that I am genuinely interested in this type of work. I like unpicking tricky schemes and I have experience of other pension and compensation schemes, in particular the armed forces schemes. And I realised that there could potentially be some useful overlap and cross-fertilisation. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, David, how long have police officers been entitled to pensions? Well, a discretionary scheme for police officers dates back as far as 1824, when uh, officers who were worn out by their service were allocated discretionary pensions uh, by, by the local watch committee. Um, that carried on in the early 20th century. They became a matter of entitlement to officers, not just a matter of discretion. And then the development uh, of injury pensions occurred for an extra pension for officers who were um, injured as a result of their police service. And, and there were lots of examples of that, including the famous case of P.C. Garvin, who developed tuberculosis because he was wet after night after night being out in the aerial bombardments in the Second World War. And the question arose uh, in a court decision, um, is he entitled to an injury pension because he had to leave the force due to TB? And the TB came from being wet hour after hour, um, serving his country um, as a police officer, um, uh, in, in the Blitz and the answer was he, he was and then we roll forward to today and police pensions are re a really important part of the overall package of pay and remuneration and benefits for police officers because they're the way that police officers can be sure that they'll have an income after they cease their police service. That's really interesting um, but what we're concerned of course with in this series are the types of payments that police officers will be paid today after they cease police service. After all, nobody gets a police pension whilst they're still working. Well, or at least not while they're still working as a police officer. That's right. I mean, one of the features of all pension systems 
is that it pays for the period after you finish the job. But different jobs have different life expectancies. Footballers only uh, might work for 10 years, um, cricketers a bit longer. Police officers tend to do this tough and physically demanding job, psychologically demanding as well, until they're in their 40s and 50s, when many leave the police service. But they move on to other jobs. Those jobs may or may not pay the same as their police salary. Um, and getting an income for the period after their period of police service is one of the main uh, purposes of the uh, police pension scheme. And it doesn't just start with the right to a pension at state retirement age. Yes, that the point about serving in a tough physical job is obviously true in the military as well. Um, and the vast majority leave well before retirement age, many onto other jobs in civilian life. The latest figures I could find indicated that the number of people in 2012 who served in the military forces until age 55, which was then the normal pension age, now it's higher, was only 2%. So David, um, when we speak of police officers earning pensions, how does this work? Well, joining the police pension scheme is optional. Police officers don't have to do so. They can make their own pension arrangements outside the police pension scheme. Um, but Almost all police officers choose to be members of the police pension scheme. And in doing so, they agree that the force will make substantial contributions out of their salaries towards the, uh, the scheme. These contributions are a lot higher than in many other public sector schemes, in part because the benefits of the police pension scheme are more generous. So a police officer under the 1987 scheme pays about 14.2% of their salary in pension contributions up to £60,000 a year and over 15% for officers earning more than £60,000 a year. And those on the later schemes um, have less uh, uh, level of contributions but the benefits are less. Um, and equally the um, uh, uh, police service uh, the police forces also make substantial contributions. So overall, about a third of the cost of police pensions are funded by the officers themselves and about two thirds are funded um, by the forces. I see. So when we talk about officers making contributions, are these contributions towards a real pension fund? No, they're not. This is one of the peculiarities of the scheme, but it's very similar to other public sector schemes, such as the armed forces scheme. Um, IBM, SO, um, BP, if you work for them and make pension contributions, those pension contributions go off to the pension trustees and they have an enormous fund and that fund is invested and in due course that fund pays out the pensions to all the pensioners. Um, it's different with a statutory scheme because for a statutory scheme um, there isn't a real fund. It's a promise by the government to pay pensions and the promise is made today and the assumption is that that promise will bind future governments. Yes, that's right. And there is no private law of contracts between the scheme member, the former police officer, and the scheme administrator, who is the chief constable in his or her capacity as police pensions authority, is there? That's right. IBM, BP, there is a contract created by the pension scheme, but this is all based on a statutory duty. So. Can I ask you to explain what is the meaning of something which is a statutory duty? Yes, of course. Um, so the obligation to pay a pension actually comes from the terms of the statutory scheme itself, which are laid down in regulations. And this obligation is therefore referred to as a statutory duty. 
Decision makers have a statutory duty to take decisions under the scheme and pay the amounts due to the beneficiaries as required under the rules of that scheme. Any claim for monies owed is then a claim for breach of statutory duty. Now, of course, a future government could change those regulations. And indeed, many of us will know how various public sector pension schemes have been altered over the years, usually by making them less advantageous to members going forward. For example, by raising the retirement age or increasing member contributions. However, as a form of deferred pay, an established right to a pension is a property right within the meaning of Article 1, Protocol 1 of the, of the European Convention on Human Rights. It follows that any attempt to reduce or remove a police officer's established right to a pension can amount to an unlawful interference with his or her rights under Article 1, Protocol 1 of the European Convention and would thus be unlawful. So this means that in addition to political considerations and no doubt the uproar that would occur were a person's established pension rights to be removed or reduced, there is also a legal constraint on the government's ability to change the rules and certainly to change them retrospectively. Whilst the UK remains a member state of the Council of Europe and thus a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, the promise that taxpayers funds will continue to be provided to meet the cost of police pensions in future years remains reasonably secure. Thanks, Anna. I agree with all of that. And perhaps we can we can draw three things out, out uh, for, for starting points. Firstly, if you have paid um, and you're a member of a scheme, then, then your rights for the period of payment are referable to your rights under that scheme. So if you remove the 87 scheme for a period of five years, the rights you acquire to a pension are referable to that scheme. Secondly, if you paid contributions into that scheme and earned rights in that period of five years, those are secure. They, they can't be taken away in the future, even if the pension scheme is changed. But thirdly, no one ever gives a guarantee that the pension scheme that you start off with at the beginning of your police career will not be changed in the future. So your established rights are protected, but there's no guarantee that the government won't close that scheme and bring in a different sort of scheme at some point in the future. And then police officers will have to make decisions whether they want to join the new scheme or not. But they can't insist that the existing scheme continues beyond, beyond in the future and that they acquire new rights under that scheme at some point. So your existing rights are protected, but your new rights are not guaranteed. Yes, I completely agree with that too. So turning then to the nuts and bolts of the different types of pensions available in the police context, let's start by trying to identify the different types of pensions so that we all know what we're talking about. I've identified at least four types of pensions from the legislation, namely ordinary pension, deferred pension, ill health pension and injury pension. So taking each one in turn, can you tell us what they are and what the differences are between them, starting with uh, an ordinary pension? Yes, Sam. Well, that's right. There is a bit of an alphabet soup here about trying to de define precisely which uh, scheme applies to in which circumstances. So let's start with an ordinary pension. What's an ordinary pension? I'm going to use the 1987 scheme as an example 
they're very similar in, the, in, in other schemes, but let's concentrate on the 87 scheme for, for the moment. The 87 scheme provides that a police officer who is over the age of 50 and has 25 years service is entitled to something called an ordinary pension. And this scheme was a 60th scheme based on the average pensionable pay of an officer, an APP. So each year the officer worked and had an average pensionable pay uh, uh, for that year, they accumulate a pension based on 1 60th of their APP. But the pension is based, it's a final salary scheme, so it depends on the final year's um, uh, average pensionable pay. An officer who uh, completes 30 years service gets a two-thirds pension because for that scheme, service between the years of 20 years and 30 years counts double. So if you do 20 years service, you get 2060th of the scheme, that is one-third of your APP, one-third of your base salary. And if you do 30 years, you get two-thirds of your base salary, payable as a pension in each year of your life um, after you die. So, I mean, oh, sorry, not a, payable in each year of your life after you retire, um, uh, as long as you've reached the age of 50. So those last 10 years after you've completed 20 years of service are particularly valuable, aren't they? In yes, pension terms. absolutely, because you end up uh, double counting. So you, you get a, a, a double benefit um, for each year. And of course, most police officers um, uh, uh, progress through the ranks. And because this is a final salary scheme, it's based on the salary at the end of their period of service. So they can have been a constable and then a sergeant and end up as a, a chief inspector. Uh, and their pension will be based purely on this scheme, on their final salary, not on the average salary they've received over the years. Yes, that's very valuable indeed. But what about police officers who don't serve for 25 years but serve less? An officer who served less than 25 years is entitled to what's called a deferred pension. It's called deferred because the payment of the pension is deferred until the officer reaches the age of 60. So an officer can do 15 years service, accumulate 15 sixtieths of their average pensionable pay, their final salary, um, doesn't get the 25 years, it doesn't get the ordinary pension, but on reaching 60 will be entitled to a pension based on one quarter, that's 15 sixtieths of their average pensionable pay of their final salary um, uh, for the rest of their life. But the payment only starts at age 60 unless the officer becomes uh, permanently disabled before then, in which case you can, the officer can apply for early release of their deferred pension. And insofar as the years that accrue after 20 years but below 25 years, presumably those count double as well? Uh, yes, they do count double as well, yep. I see. So you were starting to talk about um, injury. Well, as we discussed, policing is a hard physical and psychological job. And sadly, there are a number of police officers each year who are psychologically or physically injured as a result of their police service or indeed become injured as a result of other things that life inflicts on them. Officers who are members of the 1987 scheme and are required to retire on the grounds that they couldn't continue to execute the duties of a police officer 
due to any form of disablement, whether that's caused by police service or not, become immediately entitled to a lifelong ill health pension. In broad terms, this is the early payment of the deferred pension plus a top up of six years additional deemed pension contributions. So an ill health retired officer who'd served, for example, for 10 years will get a pension based on the average pensionable pay in his final year, because it's still a final salary scheme, of 16 years payable for life from the date of retirement. I see. So that's an ill health pension. So the last one, I think, is an injury pension. This is a, a slightly different form of pension because, first of all, it's paid by the force, not by the Home Office. And secondly, it's a form of pension which recognises that there are particular risks to the health of police officers in discharging this important public function. Unlike people injured in factories, police officers are often injured without the person who inflicted the injuries being worth suing. A police officer that's assaulted by a criminal has a theoretical civil right to damages, but in fact the criminal's highly unlikely to have either assets or indeed be insured. And it also is unlikely to be the case that the injury was caused by the negligence of the chief constable or other officers or indeed anyone else. So for many years the police pension systems operated a no-fault injury pension scheme which pays an enhanced pension to officers who become disabled as a result of the execution of their duty. And former officers can apply for this, um, uh, indeed are entitled to, to the pension without application, and these are referred to as injury pensions, but they're also known as injury on duty or IOD awards. And later in this series of podcasts, we'll look at some of the complicated issues arising from injury pensions. Great. So we were discussing the statutory duty to pay pensions in accordance with the relevant scheme. So it's necessary at this stage to set out what that scheme is. As I understand it, the relevant scheme for police pensions is contained in three sets of regulations. The Police Pension Regulations 1987, which you've already referred to, the new Police Pension Scheme under the 2006 regulations, and then the latest set of regulations by the same name dated 2015. Now, I know that in other contexts, the pension arrangements change over the years and some people fall under one scheme and some people fall under another. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, the sad fact was that for many decades the life expectancy of police officers after retirement was not great. So the pensions were very generous because they didn't have to pay for a very long time. Um, But there's a recent study which suggested that the average life of um, some officers in the United States was only 57 years, but in other areas um, of the world it's improved markedly and and in the UK it's great, it's improved fantastically and one Chief Constable explained to me that uh, he goes every year to the um, uh, retirement lunch for ex-police officers who've reached 100 and there are more and more police officers turning up each year. How lovely. Of course that's fantastic but the cost is enormous because an officer can have worked for 25 years as a police officer, accumulated a pension right retire at 50 and then be paid a pension for double the period of the work of, of his working life. Um, that means the cost of funding these pensions has radically increased and the governments respond to this by making the pension scheme less generous. First in 2006, 
and then in 2015 when substantial changes were made to a very large number of public sector pension schemes by the then government. I see. Um, we know that the administrator of the pension scheme is the chief constable. Um, so does this mean that the pensions are funded by individual forces? The answer to that is yes and no. Injury pensions are funded directly out of the force budget. But ordinary deferred and ill health pensions are paid by the Home Office. But the way the system works is that there's an allocation each year by the Home Office to individual forces um, or a pot of money to run the force in the year. But out of that money, the force has to pay back to the Home Office its pension contributions, um, which are based on the number of officers it's got um, as part of the pension scheme. So each time the uh, force makes a decision to uh, ill health retire a, pen uh, a police officer, not only does the police officer get the right to um, um, the pension, but also the, the force has to pay a sum to the Home Office to, to cover the cost of that pension. That's interesting, because you can see how that might give rise to a conflict or a tension within the administrator of the scheme, since the chief constable is both in charge of his budget for operational re reasons and also um, for administering the pension, presumably. That's right. I mean, there are really difficult decisions here because the money can only be spent once. Consider the case of Angie McLaughlin. Um, PC McLaughlin was one of the first women officers on the West Yorkshire Force and she was patrolling in Leeds city centre in 1982 when she went to arrest a young man who turned out to be an amateur boxer and assaulted her terribly. And she never recovered from her assault and she was uh, required to retire a couple of years later. The pension that she was awarded was only the lowest level of pension. Maybe because she was a woman, we don't know. But she complained about this and eventually, many years later, the pension scheme was, uh, of paperwork was looked at and it was seen that somebody had altered the, the figures on the pension scheme to reduce the value of her pension. That resulted in a reconsideration. The reconsideration put her up to the highest level of pension, which is what she should have received all along. And then she rightly said, well, I want my money. Um, I want my pension that I ought to have had all the way from 1982. And that produced a, a claim on the force budget of several hundred thousand pounds. The force went to court to try and avoid having to pay that. Now, they were unsuccessful. But you can see how the conflict arose there, because at the one, on the one hand, the, the, the chief constable was the person making the decision whether to agree to the reconsideration and whether to agree to, to consider uh, how much she, she was owed. And on the other hand, was the person having to pay Miss McLaughlin in comparison to funding another police officer on the beat. And that uh, sets up tensions which are really difficult in the context of decision-making, which engages European Convention rights and where the decision-maker shouldn't really have an interest in the outcome of the decision. Yes, and I suppose it, it serves to emphasise, doesn't it, the, your point at the beginning, which is that it's very important to try and get these things right from the start, because then that accumulation of uh, enormous pension entitlement wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. It shows how important it is to get it right from the start.
but it also makes it particularly difficult where the statutory scheme gives a discretion to the chief constable and that discretion cannot but be affected by the fact that if he exercises discretion in favour of the pensioner that's less money to fund for other areas of policing and if he exercises discretion um, against the pensioner the pensioner feels that um, actually the real reason that this discretion was exercised against me had nothing to do with the merits of my pension and everything to do with not wanting to spend the money. So that's an area which needs to be explored because it, it feels as a lawyer to be hugely unsatisfactory. I can see that and actually we will be exploring it in a later podcast, won't we? Yep. Right, well, um, how did you get into doing cases about police pensions then, David? Oh, in 2009, uh, a fantastic solicitor called Mark Lake came to me with a case and said, um, uh, 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 do you want um, uh, do you want to look at this? Can we judicially review the police authority? I looked at it. I thought we did. Um, and I, uh, it was a case where um, a man who was right-handed was accused of having suffered injury loss in his left ear. Um, the moment he realised he was right-handed, and so the gun was on the right-hand side, it was completely logical for him to, his, to, to have lost hearing from sh- rough shooting in his left ear. It would have been his right ear, because that was where the gun was. Um, and in fact, he'd been assaulted, and he said to, that the police assault was to, to do with the um, uh, uh, was the cause of the loss of his hearing. And uh, it, what had happened was that the case had been reviewed, and the original reason for the pension had been um, overturned because the new doctor thought that the hearing loss was due to the um, rough shooting and, and not the original assault. All that came before Miss Justice Burton. I stood up and hoped to impress the solicitor who the first time I'd done a case for, and Michael Burton asked me to explain to me I had two or three points, and I said yes, and he then told me to sit down, and he then tried to explain to the to the um, uh, barrister representing the force um, that the, the scheme couldn't possibly work like that whereupon the, the office the, the barrister said but, but that's how we always do it and, and Michael Burton was some uh, able to say well I don't care how you always do it this is a statutory scheme it's right or wrong your decision making has got to follow the law and that was the beginning of a long series of cases where as a lawyer you look at the scheme you try and work out how the decision ought to be made and then you look at the decision-making and you try and work out whether decision-making has or has not been made in accordance with the scheme. And every individual case has a human backstory to it, which makes it fascinating and complicated and really interesting. That's so true. I mean, I started doing armed forces uh, pension cases as a very junior barrister instructed by the government to respond to appeals in the High Court. Um, which were appeals at the time from decisions of what was then the Pensions Appeals Tribunal. But over time, I was doing uh, cases in the tribunals as well and on behalf of individuals. And the people involved were often fascinating. And each case gave me a tiny insight into a part of military history that I was largely unaware of. For example, I remember doing a case uh, about exposure to radioactivity during the nuclear testing on Christmas Island in the 19. 60s. And one of the things that I learned that's never left me was that at one stage, um, planes were sent up uh, after the explosion and somebody had to lean out with a bucket and scoop up a radioactive cloud, uh, which was then brought back down and um, tested for its um, radioactivity. And 
doing these cases taught me that there are, are often important cultural underpinnings to a scheme which you need to be aware of and I suspect that this is likely to be true in a variety of schemes where people put themselves in harm's way in order to protect others. Would you agree with that David? Yes I, I think that's right there are all manner of occasions when police officers are required to do stuff on behalf of society um, at the um, mucky end of things, at the unpleasant things, the, the end of things that most of us would not deal with. Um, they deal with people who are drunk, they deal with people high on drugs, they deal with people in all stages of agitation and obviously with enormous amounts of mental health problems. They deal with all of society's difficult bits and some of those bits are really hazardous and they come into the aftermath of car crashes and they see bodies and some people will suffer physically and some will suffer psychologically as a result of what they are doing on behalf of the rest of us and the purpose of the police pension scheme is to make sure that where those people are injured they're not just forgotten they're entitled to a pension for the rest of their life to reflect the sacrifice they've made of their health for the rest of us. And the job of the scheme is to, is to sort out those people who are entitled and those people who are not. And it's those cases at the, at the boundaries where the tectonic plates of interest clash that are often so interesting. So um, in the next podcast, we look forward to showing how... Um, much more detail about these really interesting problems and interests, all of which affect real people with real lives and um, real dilemmas. Great. Well, the next podcast will look at the main features of the schemes in more detail and the legal problems surrounding transitional provisions and age discrimination. Meanwhile, accompanying this podcast, there is Chapter 1 of David's Guide, which is now on the Landmark Chambers website, which is www.landmarkchambers.co.uk Thank you very much to everyone for listening to us and you'll hope you'll join us next time. Well, we are extremely grateful to for the support of Amy Jansen who has recorded and produced this podcast uh, without whom it would not happen. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>